There. Welcome to our Soul Food Broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Josh Hamilton was widely regarded to be the best high school baseball player in the world. He was picked up by the majors but cratered his potential through smoking crack cocaine. It ruined his marriage, his health, his talent, so it finally ruined his career. Broken down, he went to live with his grandmother but his grandmother caught him smoking crack in his bedroom and blowing it out the window. His grandmother then kicked him out of the house. His grandmother then kicked him out of the house. That's when you're at a low point in your life, when granny kicks you out of the house. His grandmother said, I'm not going to watch you kill yourself. You can either come clean or you can die. Long story short, he got saved, and the Lord put his marriage and his career back together, but only after he came to a crossroads. Now, granted, our personal story may not be so dramatic this morning, but probably each of us have a story where God has brought us to a crossroads and then quoted Joshua 24:14 to us. It says, Now, therefore, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, And put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord." This is where we find the nation of Israel at this morning. Look at verse 1 with me, please. Now Samuel said to all Israel, Indeed, I have heeded your voice and all that you said to me and have made a king over you. And now here is the king walking before you, and I am old and gray-headed. And look, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my childhood to this day. Here I am. Witness against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken, or whose donkey have I taken, or whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed, or from whose hand have I received any bribe with which to blind my eyes? I will restore it to you. And they said, You have not cheated us or oppressed us, nor have you taken anything from any man's hand. Then he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand, And they answered, He is witness. In his farewell message, Samuel defended his own ministry in verses 1 through 5. He then reviewed God's miracles to Israel in verses 6 through 11. And finally, he admonished the people to fear the Lord and to obey the covenant in verses 12 through 25. Now, Samuel mentions the Lord at least 30 times in this passage. Why? 
because his heart's desire was to see the people return to the Lord and to once again honor the covenant. It was as though Israel's future and past were represented by the two figures of Samuel and Saul. Now, there's no difficulty in realizing which one was the most attractive. Indeed, it was Samuel's old age that the elders had advanced as one reason for their proposal that a new king be appointed. The people of Israel insisted upon having a king like the nations surrounding them. And as I imagine that scene, it's difficult not to catch a glimpse of the tall young man shuffling his feet at the awkwardness of the position that he finds himself in. He had became Israel's king as a consequence of the nation's climactic evil act. And so God let them have their way. At first, it seemed to be exciting. Head and shoulders above everyone else, Saul was a man that they could be proud of, a man that they could look up to. But as we will see in the chapters before us, he was terribly flawed and will prove to be a heartbreak to the nation. In the eyes of the Israelites, Samuel wasn't a very sexy leader as it was. The people wanted a more charismatic leader, someone with strength, confidence, and the ability to lead them in war. But the truth of the matter is that God oftentimes prefers not to work through flashing means. Oh, sure, you can remember the pillar of fire hovering in front of the Israelites, or the crossing of the Red Sea, or the splitting of the curtain at the death of Christ. But God more often opts for hidden ways. The whisper to Elijah, a baby in a manger, a death on a cross. And through these unimpressive things, God reveals himself to us in unexpected ways. Like Jesus, Samuel stood before the people and asked, Which of you are able to convict me of sin? I have done nothing bad, and God has done nothing but good. Why then did you turn your back on him and demand a king? The people heard what Samuel had said, and they bore witness that he had indeed spoken the truth. Samuel was a man of integrity. Saul would turn out to be a man of hypocrisy and duplicity. Now, the language this morning suggests a court setting. Samuel put himself on the dock, so to speak, and invited the people to bring accusations against him before the judge, the Lord, and a key witness, namely the new king. Now, please keep in mind that Samuel was brought up in the tabernacle. His life was spent in a fishbowl. He was always in public view. But impressively, Samuel's life could stand the public inspection. It could be put under the hot spotlight of public opinion and constant scrutiny. Now, that's quite a statement for a man to make who has been before the public eye for so many years and who had been a judge. He surely had many opportunities to become rich, but he had not yielded to that temptation. Samuel is one of the most outstanding men in the Word of God. But having and maintaining a high character is not always easy, is it? Just ask Ray Floyd. 
As professional golfer Ray Foy was getting ready to tap in a routine 9-inch putt, he saw the ball move ever so slightly. And according to the rule book, if the ball moves in any way, the golfer must access himself a penalty stroke. Yet, consider the situation. Floyd was among the leaders in a tournament offering a top prize of $108,000. To acknowledge that the ball had moved could mean he would lose his chance to get the big money. Writer David Hollihan describes as follows what other golfers might have done in that circumstance. He writes, The golfer ducks his head and flails wildly with his hands, as if being attacked by a bee. Next, he steps back from the ball, rubbing his eyes for a phantom speck of dust, all the while scanning his playing partners in the gallery for any sign that the ball's movement had been detected by anyone else. If the coast is clear, he taps in the ball to get his par. Ray Floyd, however, didn't do that. He assessed himself a penalty stroke and wound up with a bogey on the hole. Now, I'm no golfer, so let me say I don't know what a bogey is, but anything that sounds like booger can't be good. <laughs> now, there are a lot of things in our lives that we have no control over. We don't get to pick our parents, our upbringing, our talents, or our IQ. But we can choose and mold the character that we have. Years ago, when I took trigonometry, which is like algebra on crack, we studied integers. Now, an integer is a whole number in the sense that it is not fractional. It's from this word that we get our word integrity. It implies that our character is whole and not fractured with deceit and hypocrisy. Integrity means sound complete and cohesive. To the extent that a person's ethics and morality are integrated, that person has integrity. And to an extent that a person's ethics and morality are not integrated, that person lacks integrity. We also have to understand that biblical integrity is not just about doing right. It's about having the right heart and then matching that on the outside by how we live our lives. A good word to think of concerning this is consistency. There must be consistency between the inside and the outside. Now, God is completely consistent. What he does always matches his character and his name. And our goal should be the same. Christ desires his disciples to be disciplined by doing the right thing the right way, and for the right reason. People want leaders who are honest and have integrity. They want to know that promises and commitments mean something to the person who made them. Today, though, when we talk about commitment, sometimes when life becomes hard, we change the rules and we allow our commitments and our promises to be broken. But God tells us how important our words are. Throughout the Word, we find God making promises and then always keeping His promises. God is trustworthy. He says what He means, and He means what He says. It always boils down to this. 
character. It's not about what we say, but how we act upon what we say. Now, concerning the character of Samuel, literally what they say when they answered him was simply the word witness. The one word emphasizes that the people had nothing at all to say against Samuel. They could only agree by echoing his words. Samuel simply asked the question, can anyone here point the finger at me? And no one could. May each of us live that kind of life. Paul also had that type of reputation in the New Testament. When he leaves the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, he leaves them with these words. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole counsel of God. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you, night and day, even with tears. It's a wonderful thing to get to the end of your life and to be able to review your life and your ministry and not be afraid or ashamed. May we all be able to say with the Lord, I have glorified you here on the earth. I have finished the work that you have sent me to do. John 17:4. Look at verse 6 with me, please. And Samuel said to the people, It is the Lord who raised up Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. Now therefore, stand still that I may reason with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous acts of the Lord, which he did to you and your fathers. When Jacob had gone into Egypt, and your fathers cried out to the Lord, then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. And when they forgot the Lord their God, he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, into the hand of the Philistines, into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. Then they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and served the Baals and the Asterisks. But now deliver us from the hand of our enemies, and we will serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubal, Bedan, Jephthah, and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hands of your enemies on every side, and you dwelt in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. Now therefore, here is the king whom you have chosen, and whom you have desired. And take note, the Lord has set a king over you. Basically, Samuel has just given us a brief history lesson of the faithfulness of the Lord and the fickleness of the people. He does this by highlighting the Lord's past dealings with Israel when they had no king, which will cast a devastating light on their demand for a new king. It's often been said that the one thing we learn from history is that we don't learn anything from history. And Samuel didn't want his people to make that same mistake. Verse 14, please. If you fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and do not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then both you and the king who reigns over you will continue following the Lord your God. However, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your fathers. Just another quick comment from the book of Deuteronomy 30. It says, See, I've set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity, 
and that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply, and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. But if your heart turn away and you will not obey, but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You will not prolong your days in the land where you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess it. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. Do you know how I would sum up that entire section right there? Serve, don't swerve. You should put that on a bumper sticker and make yourself some money. Verse 16, please. Now, therefore, stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is today not the wheat harvest? I will call to the Lord, and he will send thunder and rain. You may perceive and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, and asking a king for yourselves. So Samuel called to the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins the evil of asking a king for ourselves. Have you ever done something that you really, really, really regretted? Well, me neither. But for the sake of the podcast, let's pretend like that we have. Israel now has to face up to their bad decisions. It was time to belly up to the banquet of consequences. And you know what? Sometimes it takes a storm to wake us up. Sometimes we can get so comfortable and complacent in our lives that like this, God has to bring a storm about to get our attention and allow us to take inventory once again of our lives. Maybe this is where the phrase, praying up a storm, comes from. Now, the promised miracle may not seem as grand as the crossing of the Red Sea in Exodus 14. Nonetheless, it was very impressive. You see, the wheat harvest was in the early summer when no rain falls. And so a thunderstorm in this season would have been an unknown occurrence. Now, it appears that there is a twofold meaning with the thunder and the rain. First is the fact that God has been the only cause for the blessedness of the land. The reason that we have rain is not just because a barometric pressure front is blown in. No, it is because God is sovereign. Or the thunderclap can be taken to mean that God is sudden in his judgment and the thunder was simply a big amen from heaven. Notice verse 20 with me. Then Samuel said to the people, Do not fear. You have done all this wickedness. It do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside, for then you would go after empty things, which cannot profit or deliver, for they are nothing. For the Lord will not forsake his people, for his great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you his people. That's what Lisa Hawthorne was talking about this morning. Samuel moved from fear to do not fear as he encouraged the people to accept the situation their unbelief has created and to make the most of it. 
I wonder how many times in our lives do we get what we ask for and then wish that we had never asked for it. Yet the Lord would not reject or forsake His people because of His holy covenant and His great faithfulness. God's purpose was to use Israel to bring glory to His name, and He would fulfill that promise. Now, I think verse 21 defines a life apart from God. It speaks of going after empty things that cannot profit or deliver. Why is that? Because they are nothing. Now, in our day, we really don't have gods. What we have are isms. Would you turn to humanism, knowing that the history of mankind is marked by continuous warfare? How about pantheism in the New Age? You can then sit at the feet of some yogurt-sucking guru and ponder your belly button. How about atheism? That worked out real well for Russia, didn't it? How about hedonism, which is basically the eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die outlook on life. And that may sound good if you're actually the one lying on that deathbed. The logic of these words will only become clear in verse 22. Until we hear that, what Samuel said must have sounded very unreasonable. He told them, A, not to be afraid, B, what they had done was indeed evil, and see that they should not do it again. That is, they should not again turn away from following the Lord. And finally, D, they should serve the Lord now wholeheartedly. But what grounds could there possibly be for them not being afraid? And how was it that there was still a future and a hope for this rebellious nation? Once again, here's the reason. It's verse 22. It says, For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. In the history of Israel, there was something bigger at stake than the nation's well-being. The Lord had committed himself to these people. And for his great namesake, he would not forsake them. Now that is an astonishing statement. It expresses the absolute sovereignty of God's grace. This is not something that fits very neatly into the human mind. This is the gospel. Even though they have sinned greatly and terribly dishonored the Lord, even though, even though they have a king right now, which we was a sin to get, and even though there is no undoing that sin or the painful consequences that are going to come because of it, nevertheless, there is a future and there is a hope. What is the basis of the fearlessness of God's people according to this verse? First of all, it's the promise that he would never cast them away. In spite of their sin of wanting a new king, the verse says, the Lord will not cast away his people. But that is not the deepest foundation of the hope and fearlessness in this verse. Why will God not cast away his people? The deepest reason is given for his great name's sake. The rock-bottom foundation of our forgiveness and our fearlessness and our joy is the commitment that God has to his own great name. 
First, he is committed to act for his own name's sake. And then for that reason, he is committed to act on behalf of his people. The Bible says, whom the Lord loves, those he chastens. Therefore, God's chastening hand is actually a sign of his love. And since it's just us here this morning, let's be honest and admit that in one way or the other, all of us have rebelled to some point and to some degree. But the great news is that on the basis of this text, God says, even though you have rebelled against me or ignored me, if you obey what I say and start fearing again today, I will be with you. Now, if you don't, I will chasten you because I'm your father and I still love you. My friends, don't let past sins and mistakes spoil your life. Regardless of who you are or what you have done, if you turn to the Lord for salvation and for forgiveness, God will accept you and richly bless you. Don't let the past destroy the future and ruin the present for you. That's grace, my friends. God doesn't give up on Israel And he won't give up on you either. Because his name is on you, the Lord will not forsake you. Now, as Christians, we have even better. We have the name of Christ upon us. That means the Lord won't give up on or ever turn away from us. No matter where we've been or how stupid we've been, the Lord won't give up on us because we carry his name. It pleased God to make us his people. Now, why would it please the Lord to have a person like me carry his name? Beats me. I have absolutely no idea. That God would entrust the name of his only son is indeed a mystery to me. What a great God. What a loving Father. What a merciful God is our God. No matter how many times we fail him, no matter how many times we stumble and fall, his only desire is to pick us up and let us start all over again. When I think of all the wickedness that is in us, I'm so thankful for the love of God that is so unlimited. Verse 23, please. Moreover, ask for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. But I will teach you the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Samuel, the prophet of God, considered prayerlessness as a sin against the Lord. To live a prayerless life is to be disobedient to the command of God. The spirit and the habit of prayer is commanded and encouraged throughout the Bible. And so when the people asked Samuel to pray for them, Samuel said, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. You know, prayerlessness is the epitome of selfishness because my failure to intercede for others means that I'm withholding from them that which so could greatly bless them. Prayer is the proof of love, and love is the product of prayer. If I love someone, I will pray for them. 
And if I pray for them, I will love them. That's why Jesus told us to pray for our enemies. If you pray for someone, someone you don't even like, something will happen within you. You will find your heart knit to those that you are praying for. Paul said, My heart's prayer and desire for Israel is that they should be saved. In fact, I would be accursed for the sake of my kinsmen. Paul is saying that if it were possible, I would go to hell and let them take my place in heaven. Now, where did Paul get that kind of love? I suggest it was through the passionate and consistent prayer for the very people who were out to do him in. Because he prayed passionately for Israel, he loved Israel even above his own life. In closing, the best gauge that I know to measure my humility or lack thereof is to just monitor my prayer life. A person who doesn't pray is proud because, in essence, what we are saying is, I can provide for my kids. I can excel in my career. I can fix this difficulty. I can get through this day with no help from the Lord. Now, a person, though, who is given to prayer is humble because he knows that without the Lord, he can't do anything. But with the Lord, all things are possible. And, Father, we are just so thankful for you. It's been a theme this morning, Lord, with the music and everything else, that it is your great name, O Lord. That is our only chance, our only hope. There is no plan B. We are so thankful that you decided to set your love upon us. Lord, they said, Father, that God loves us simply because he loves us. There is no other reason than that, Lord. You just chose to love us. And I pray each of us would experience that love. And in experiencing that love, Lord, we would pass it on to others. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.